0: We're going to consider today together 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in verses 1 through 8. So if you would find 1 Thessalonians 4, we'll read the passage of Scripture here in just a moment in a message entitled, God's will is your sanctification. God's will is your sanctification. Holiness in the Bible describes first and foremost the purity of, And the moral perfection of the nature of God. The absolute holiness of God makes certain that all of God's actions toward his creatures and toward his creation are always perfect and just. God acts perfectly and justly and consistently with his character. Because God is holy. All that God does is holy. And as his people, he has called us to be a holy people. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 says, you shall be holy for I am holy. W.S. Plumer wrote that we never see sin aright until we see it as being against God. All sin is against God in this sense, in that it is his law that is broken. It is his authority that is despised. He goes on to say that there's a self-centered attitude at the root of many of our difficulties with sin. And until we deal with that attitude and we see that it's self that is getting in the way of our sanctification, we'll not live in light of God's holiness as we should. 1 Thessalonians is instruction for us as believers. Paul was writing to the church at Thessalonica. And what he was writing to them for was so that they could have spiritual stability and that from that foundation of spiritual stability, that they might have spiritual growth. And it's the same word for us, that we would be stable in the Word of God, and that we would be growing in the holiness of who God is as our King and Lord over all. We begin reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and verse 1. This is what the Scripture says. Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. Verse 6. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all those offenses as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity but to live in holiness. Verse 8, consequently anyone who rejects this does not reject man but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Pray with me if you will. Father, we thank you today for the opportunity we have to come and to consider your holy character, your nature, your glory. And I pray that as the light of all of that through the truth of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit is shown upon our hearts. That we would see ourselves as we truly are. That we would see who we can be and should be in Jesus And that we would take these instructions to heart in a way that we would bring honor and glory to you and fulfill your will for our lives. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, the crucified, risen, and reigning Lord. Amen. Additionally then, or finally then, marks the transition here in chapter 4 into a new section, a new idea of thought. But in a sense, he's carrying on what he's just concluded in chapter 3. So when the Scripture says, "...for this is God's will for you, your sanctification," he's building on chapter 3 and verse 13. Because in chapter 3 and verse 13 he says, "...may he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen." So Paul puts the goal in front of us, and he says the goal in front of us is that we would be presented blameless in the sight of our Lord, the one who gave his life for us, that we would be ready when he comes to receive us. Holiness is to be set apart from the world and to be set apart to God. So the person who is holy, the person who is being sanctified, has been separated from something, which is sin and separated to someone who is God. And God is concerned about us internally. God cares about your heart. And one of the shortcomings of many people who profess to be Christians is that they're trying to live up to the Christian faith externally. So they're going through the motions. They're doing the things that they think good Christians should be doing. But at the core of their heart, their heart is not where it should be with God. And God is saying to us through His Word that, He cares about our hearts so that we would be prepared, that we would live in light of this holiness that he has given to us. The word sanctification literally means to be set apart. It means to be consecrated. It means to dedicate. Now, the scripture teaches us that in Christ, we have first been positionally sanctified, in other words, when we are saved, we are declared righteous in Jesus, and the finished work of Jesus is credited to our account. We are justified in Christ through faith in Him. And our position is that we have been sanctified because of what Christ has done for us. And that's why the Scripture is so clear that we are now dead to sin, but we are alive to God, Romans chapter Six and verse 11 we have been delivered from the penalty of sin that's the past tense aspect of our sanctification but then the scripture teaches also that in christ we are being progressively sanctified that what is now ours as a possession because of our position is now being worked out progressively in us so that we are growing into a greater likeness of jesus The Bible says very plainly in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 that it is God's will that you be conformed to the image of His Son. So you've been delivered from the penalty of sin, and now you are being delivered from the power of sin in your life. But there's another part here that in Christ... We will be perfectly sanctified that when we are in the presence of God, we will be in a glorified state. And it's interesting that in Romans 8 and verse 29, it says that it is God's will that you be conformed to the image of Jesus. And then Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we have been delivered from the penalty. We are being delivered from the power of sin and we will one day be delivered from the very presence of sin when we see our Savior face to face. And your role and my role in sanctification is both passive and it's active. We trust God that He will sanctify us, but then in obedience to the Scripture, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable and pleasing to god and we yield to the work of the holy spirit in our lives that's why we're given this encouragement here in verse one that as we have received the truth as the church at thessalonica had received the truth they were to walk and to please god as they had been doing but even more so so you understand that there's there's never the position of neutral in the Christian life, meaning that we are either moving forward and we're growing to be more like Jesus and we're growing in our sanctification and the foundation that's being built in our lives is being built upon in a strong way, or we are, we are maturing, or we're moving backwards, we're regressing, we're losing ground because of our own decisions. And after these people were led to the Lord, the missionaries began to teach them how to live and how to please God practically. They taught them the truth. And how you must walk or live is in a way that is pleasing to God. So we're called upon to grow and to be on guard against the temptations of the world that are around us. And God is concerned with your walk and whether or not you are pleasing him in your Christian life. So understand that Jesus did not come just to die so that you could go to heaven someday when life on this earth is over. That is part of it. But Jesus came and he died in your place and he paid the penalty for your sins and he rose from the dead by the power of God. And he did that so that we could be transformed into his likeness. So the aspect of our going to heaven is the end reality of what God has done and will do for us. But in the meantime, God is transforming us so that we would be like his son. And that's ultimately what the Christian life is all about. That Jesus came so that we might be redeemed and so that we might live as light in the midst of a sinful world that is dark and lost without him. Understanding the cultural context that this church found themselves in is significant. Many of the people had come from rank uh, idolatry and immorality with absolutely no restraints. The Roman Empire was rotten to the core socially and morally. Warren Weersby wrote that immorality was a way of life. People had the leisure time to indulge in the latest pleasures And the Christian message of holy living was new to that culture. And it was not easy for these young believers to fight the temptations around them. And I say to you today, it's not much different in the culture that we find ourselves in. And there are many people, when they're presented with the truth claims of Christ, and they understand that it's going to necessitate a turning from their current way of life and an embracing of what God is calling us to as our lives. They turn away from it because they want to remain in what they're doing. They don't want to be accountable to anyone. They don't want to believe that there's any sort of truth or any standard or measure of living. And as a result of it, they find it very difficult to come into the Christian faith. Now the general teaching in verses 1 and 2 is followed by specific teaching in verses 3 through 8. And there are three instructions here for our sanctification. And the first is this. We are to abstain from sexual immorality. We are to abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 3 says that very plainly, that we're to keep away from it. We're to refrain from it. We're to hold back. We're to avoid it. And what is stressed here is, It's personal responsibility which results in pleasing God and protecting ourselves from sin and avoiding the consequences thereof. This phrase sexual immorality is a broad term. It's broad in the sense that it uh, references all forms of unacceptable sexual practices. So we would say that it is any form of illicit sexual relationship and it is a means of surrendering your sexual purity so if you engage in sexual immorality of any form what you're saying is that you're going to do what you want to do it doesn't matter what God has said it doesn't matter what God's framework is it doesn't matter what God's design is it doesn't matter what the guardrails of life are that God has put up for you you're going to do what you want to do and you make the decision to do that and you're giving up your sexual purity for sexual immorality. It's important to note that sexuality is God's design and he is the one who defines the parameters for it. What the enemy does, our spiritual enemy Satan does, is he takes what was created by God to be good and to be exercised within certain parameters and he counterfeits it and he uses it against us. He presents an idol in front of us and he tells us that that idol will bring us pleasure. That idol will bring us satisfaction. That idol will bring us something that we're looking for. But what he doesn't tell us is that there are consequences hiding behind the idol and the consequences are far greater than what the immediate gratification or reward could possibly be. And God has designed the sexual relationship to be within the bonds of marriage between a man. And a woman. And it's no news flash to you that we live in an impure world, an impure society. It's all around us. Statistics tell us that somewhere between 40 and 50 million Americans visit pornographic websites on a regular basis. There are 42 million pornographic websites, 370 million pages. Porn's annual revenue is more than the NFL, the NBA, and MLB combined. And you know how popular and profitable those entities are. 47% of Americans have reported that it's been an issue at one time or the other. 56% of American divorces cite pornography as a problem. 68% of church-going men have viewed pornography on a regular basis. And that's just the the tip of the iceberg. And that's just representative of one area of sexual immorality. But let me bring this just a little bit closer to home. I know enough to know that in a congregation this size, there are some people who perhaps viewed pornography last evening and then got up and got dressed and came to church as though nothing had ever happened i know enough to know in a congregation this size there are some people who are either involved extramaritally or premaritally and you think that it doesn't matter it'll be okay there'll be no consequences there'll be no concern and i'm here to tell you god cares he's concerned and i'm also to tell you that there's grace to be found there's deliverance from anything we find ourselves wrapped up in Jesus did not die for nothing. He died to rescue you and to make you pure. Over a third of married men, according to statistics, will cheat on their wives. Over a fourth of married women will cheat on their husbands. Fifty percent of marriages will be affected by the unfaithfulness of a spouse. But here's an important point I want you to note. There's a connection. Don't miss this. This will help you. There's a connection between sexual immorality and idolatry in the Bible. And it's a pretty clear connection. What is an idol? An idol is anything that we put in front of our worship for God. And it's something that would supersede our allegiance and our love for God and our focus on Him. And idolatry and sexual immorality are seen together often in the Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sin a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Now watch this, verse 19 and 20 of 1 Corinthians 6 refers to the body of believers as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why does that matter? Well, pagan idol worship was connected to acts of sexual immorality in the temple of a false god. So the connection is this. When we use our bodies for immoral purposes, whether it be sexual immorality or some other area of immorality, we imitate pagan worship by defiling God's temple. And we therefore engage in idolatry, As we engage in immorality. Now I understand that people often object to God's design for sexual relations between a man and a woman in marriage. Some people argue that since we're in modern times we should not be bound by such a restrictive sexual ethic. However, the verses condemning sexual immorality in the Bible are typically paired with other things like stealing and lying and greed and strife and anger and envy and drunkenness and the like and i want you to know that god's opinion does not change based on the opinion of the majority i mean we're coming back here to the core of authority do we believe what god has said the very issue in the garden of eden did god really say it's the same issue that we're dealing with today even in the church where people are calling into question the plain truth that god has presented to us and they're asking did god really say and if god said then we're to follow there are others that argue well it doesn't matter what kind of relationships you get yourself involved in because love is love this is the 21st century get with it love is love as long as people are in a committed loving relationship it doesn't matter what they do but the bible makes no distinction for the sexual relationship between the loving and the unloving people watch this the only distinction is between married and unmarried people that's it that's all there is other people argue well God wants me to be happy. So therefore, it must be okay what I'm doing. Listen to me very carefully. God will never, under any circumstance, guide you to do something or bless something that you are doing that is contrary to his character or to his word. Ever. You cannot say, I know God said, but I'm going to do this. You can say it, but you can't condone it. And then there are others that argue, uh, particularly in many churches today, that the teaching of Paul on human sexuality was the only teaching and that Jesus had nothing to say about homosexuality or any other form of aberrant behavior. So therefore, why should we care and to those particularly in the church who are leading the sheep astray saying that Jesus had nothing to say about these matters I say nonsense and here's why I say it Matthew 19 verses 4 through 6 these are the words of Jesus have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus didn't have anything to say about this. Number one. The Word of God is inspired, and the triune Godhead does not act separately from one another in that regard. The Word that's been delivered to us by the Holy Spirit and confirmed by Jesus the Son has come to us from God the Father. It has been breathed out to us, and Jesus himself says this is the pattern for your human sexuality. He didn't qualify it. Nowhere does he say anything contrary to that. So I'm going to make a statement that is absolutely counter-cultural, but it is a statement on which the church must hold the line, and here it is. Premarital sex, extramarital sex, pornography, and homosexuality are all outside of God's design and are therefore sinful. And if we disagree... We're disagreeing with biblical authority. I mean, that's the line that you've got to cross. You understand that? This, this is where we're at. And if you're going to step across that line and say, therefore, these things are acceptable and they're okay and they're permitted and they're to be condoned and to be celebrated, you've got to say, I do not believe the word of God. That's what you've got to say. Now, if you're willing to step over that line and deal with the Lord about that, you'll be accountable to him for it but this is the line the line is not blurry the subject is not confusing this is what has been presented to us in the word and the bible says that we're to abstain from sexual immorality we're we're to run from it we're to flee from it and god will give us the power to do it instruction number two you need to control your own body verse four so that each of you knows how to control his own body in sanctification and honor and holiness not with lustful desires like the gentiles who don't know God so it's given as a personal responsibility to learn to control ourselves in a way that is holy and honorable in other words we need the know-how and when we have the know-how we have the power we have the power because we have the spirit And it's the Spirit who brings this about. And the word vessel is used in some translations as the word body. Figuratively, it's referring to the human body that is formed of clay and is both frail and feeble. And 2 Timothy 2 and verse 21 says that Paul refers to the man who purges himself of impurity as being a vessel for honor. So God has given us our bodies to use within the boundaries that he has given to us, but the issue is all natural functions need a certain measure of control. John Gill, the preacher of yesteryear, said, For a person to possess his vessel in sanctification and in honor is to keep under his body and bring it into subjection and to preserve it in purity and chastity as the eyes from unchaste looks, the tongue from unchaste words, and the other members from unchaste actions, and to use it in an honorable way now don't miss the contrast here he says the contrast is not with lustful desires not with passionate desires like the gentiles who do not know god so the lustful desires are the, the passion of lust this is a strong expression that emphasizes the strength of unbridled desire and he says if you're behaving in that stuff you're acting like lost people if you're wrapped up in sexual immorality and impurity and your life is not being conformed to the image of Jesus, you're acting like lost people. So I say that to you as a word of warning, particularly young people who may be going down a path that is not honoring to God, and you've been taught this, you know this, you've even said that you believed it to be true, and yet you're going down your own path. This is a word of warning to you because the word of warning is if you are going down that path, either you are living in unrepentant sin and God is calling you back to the place of grace and the mercy and the forgiveness, or you're acting as a lost person. and it's a test if you can continue on and just do as you please it's not honoring to god now self-control is somewhat of a paradox when we are saved positionally we are in christ the spirit of god indwells us we surrender to him and then he bears the fruit of the spirit in our lives as we keep on being filled with the spirit the fruit of the spirit is born out in our lives love joy peace long-suffering kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control and it's a bit of a paradox because self-control is a characteristic of a spirit-filled spirit-led life and we're to yield ourselves up to the spirit of god but yet it also involves moderation and constraint in the ability to say no to our base desires and to our fleshly lust, and to control our responses in life. That's what self-control is. heard a story about a little league baseball player that was getting coached a little bit in his uh, understanding of self-control right before a game. And he said, son, he said, no, I want you to listen good. You understand that if a strike is called or you're out at first, you don't argue with, you don't curse the umpire. The little boy said, yes, sir. Coach, I understand that. Coach said, good. He said, now, go over and explain that to your mother. <laughs> We're all at varying points in our understanding and our growth of self-control. And one of the evidences that God is working in our lives is the ability to control our thoughts and our words and our actions. We are free in Christ, and yet we are faced with a range of choices and decisions to make. And the Bible encourages us to kill the flesh, to live by the Spirit, to dedicate our bodies to God, and to renew our minds. Control your own body. The third instruction is know that your actions affect others. Know that your actions affect others. Verse 6, this means one must not transgress against or defraud his brother in this matter. So, Paul makes an appeal on behalf of others who would potentially be affected by immoral behavior. Sexual immorality harms not only the person engaging in it, but also the people who are involved in it. And it affects others as well. And he gives three reasons for the warning. Reason number one is found in verse number 6 the lord is the avenger of all these offenses as we also previously warned and told you i and you are accountable to god for the decisions that we make and the actions that we undertake and sexual sin does not go unnoticed and will not go unaccountable to god Now, obviously, there are immediate consequences to this, damage to relationships, the potential for physical consequences, things in our age, like sexually transmitted diseases, the aspect of the future loss of rewards in terms of what God would bless you with had you walked a faithful and pure and holy life in what he would entrust to you. But the bottom line is we're accountable to God for how we control our bodies because our actions affect others. They affect our family. They affect other people's families. They affect lives. And God says, this is the best way, friends. Walk in it. Over here is where blessing is to be found. Over here is where life is to be found. Over here is where truth is to be found. And we're going to answer to God. Because He's the avenger. That's what it says. God is the avenger of all these offenses. And then reason number two is that God has not called us to impurity or to immorality, but to sanctification and to holiness. Verse 7. So the purpose and the plan of God is that he has called you into a life-changing relationship with himself. And it's interesting that the word impurity is literally the word refuse or garbage. So you can either fill your life up with garbage, and sexual immorality can rob God's glory from your life when it should be displayed in your life, and holiness should guide you. And then reason number three, verse eight. Therefore, the person who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who also gives you his Holy Spirit. Sexual purity is grounded in the truth of God, and the Holy Spirit empowers us to be faithful. God has given us his indwelling spirit so that we can be faithful, even in an immoral culture. You hear what the word is saying through the Spirit. If you reject this, and you say, well, that's not for the 21st century. That's not for enlightened people. That's not for intelligent thinking people. That's not for progressive people. That's not for people who really understand what the Scripture says. Then the Bible says you're not rejecting man, you're rejecting God because it came from Him by the Holy Spirit. This is eternally significant. And I close with this from Jesus and the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. Blessed are the pure in in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The good news this morning is it doesn't matter where your life has come from. It doesn't matter how much refuse you have in your life. It doesn't matter how broken you are. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been or who you've been with. What matters is that God is a holy and forgiving and restoring and renewing God. And we cannot understand the depth of the hope that we have in him. And the immeasurable grace that is to be found in him if we don't understand our circumstance. So I've said all these things to you today, even if you're wrapped up in the middle of something right now that you know is downright displeasing to God, I've said all this to you to say, the Lord is gracious and forgiving and loving, and he will renew you, and if you need to be saved, he will save you. And we can be pure in heart by depending on the power of God. It's a gift that comes to us through the new birth. We can be pure in heart by meditating on the word of God. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. Sanctify them by your word, Father, for your word is truth. We can be pure in heart by fellowshipping with the people of God. Let us consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And listen, the competing voices in the culture, they are strong and they are pervasive. I mean, there is a set agenda to totally change our mindset, to totally break down our worldview, to totally obliterate anything that we might have believed for the last 2,000 years as people who said that they believed the Word of God. And there's an attempt to do that continually. And young people, you are hearing voice after voice that is telling you that there is a way that is better than the way that God has designed. And that those voices are calling you to change your worldview in such a way that you move away from the anchor of the Word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I am telling you, that is a dead end. And that is not where life is to be found. It's not where life is to be found. Life is to be found in God. The one who knows you the best loves you the most. The one who knows every single thing that we have ever thought or done or intended to do. Loves us more than anybody else could ever love us. And that's the gospel. And the blessing is that we will see God. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. As he is in the world so are we that's our calling that's the path god shines the light and he says come walk in it come walk in it father thank you for these moments we've had together this is a hard message in a sense to preach it's a hard message that is difficult for us to process and understand and especially to put into practice But I thank you that you have given us your word. And Lord, by faith, I state that this word is true and trustworthy. And that you have given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. God, I pray for those in our midst today that are broken. Perhaps by decisions they've made in the past and pathways they've walked. Lord, you've not called us to be mired in that brokenness or to be um, depressed about our past, You have called us to freedom, and to forgiveness, and to eternal hope. So I pray, Father, that each of us would rest in that. Some would come for salvation and know that they need ultimate transformation. Others who might pray in these moments, even where they're seated, and say, God, thank You that even though You know it all, you didn't move away from me. You moved toward me. You loved me with an everlasting love. And for that I say thank you. God, help us to be a pure church. To fight for that purity. To live in a way that honors and lifts up the name of Jesus and all that we do. And Lord, help us to have a special measure of grace. For those around us who might have different perspectives. Who've bought into. The worldviews that they've been taught and been bombarded by. God, other people are not our enemies ultimately. Sin is our enemy. And I pray that we would be in the world just as Jesus was the one who came to seek and to save the lost, the one who was willing to bear the penalty, the one who was willing to forgive freely, the one who was there to offer hope. Help us to be like him even as we interact with others, help us never to think that our goal is to win an argument, but our goal is to win souls. Our goal is not to be dominating, but our goal is to be gracious and loving. So help us to that end, Lord. We need your spirit. We need your power. We give this time now of close over to you. I pray if there are decisions that need to be made for you or prayers that need to be prayed of faith that people would come as we conclude, that these truths would be strong in our hearts in the days to come, because we believe, God, that your will for us is our sanctification, that we would be like Jesus, and we long to be more like him, and we pray it in his name. Amen.